a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, this show isn't about handing down truth like it comes from, you know, somebody in authority alone. This is about helping you find the truth on your own, because after all, you really should be your own fact checker. And one of the most reasoned voices when it comes to that quest for finding out what's going on is my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, great to catch up with you once again. Oh, likewise, Brian. I'm, I'm going to try and do my best mama's and papa's imitation of California diapering on such a winter's day. <laughs> isn't, isn't it crazy? You know, I, I'm looking around the country, and, and I happen to yep. live in one of those little islands of freedom that that still exists. So things look pretty normal to me, but yep. uh, but I'm looking at some of those uh, population centers, California being one of the big ones, and, and yep. it's like it, you, you would think that uh, that we were just entering the Black Plague. Yeah, I, I've got a little bit of personal insight into it because I have family that lives in San Diego. My sister and her family live there. So uh, I was alerted post-haste to the reinstitution of the, uh, I'm going to call it now, my new term is the chin speedo requirement <laughs> for uh, going anywhere indoors. <laughs> and, you know, I pity her. I, you know, I summoned my Mr. T voice and say, I pity the fool. And I said, get out of there. You know, it really, there, there are times when it's a good idea to, to stand and fight, so to speak, and there are other times when it's wise to retreat. And I don't know, I think California's pretty much lost. I think uh, it, it's, it behooves anybody who doesn't want to live the rest of their lives in a Jim Jones sickness cult to get out of there. Wasn't it interesting, though, I think it was just a couple of days ago, the, uh, the governor of uh, Colorado actually declared an end to the, yeah. to the COVID emergency. And I thought, now, I, he's not exactly a right winger by any stretch of the imagination, but even, it seems like the obvious is starting to, to dawn on even people who you would think would still be entrenched in the you know, power grab mode. Well, he might have acquired uh, some information, which we, we, we'd circle back to and talk about. And uh, I think one of the easiest ways to gauge whether somebody is, uh, well, not necessarily a fraud, but well-intended uh, or not, is whether they provide information and then advise you to consider it and make up your own mind. Mm. If, on the other hand, they uh, tell you you have to agree with whatever they're telling you and that any other information that's contrary is wrong-thinkful, then you can be pretty sure you're dealing with a fraud. And it's it's not easy to get a, a good, solid take on things. I mean, the misinformation is rampant. You had a recent column on this, and maybe that's a good place mm -hmm. for us to start today. Yes. Let's talk about uh, what what is meant by misinformation. I get the feeling this means different things to different people. It does. Well, it's a pejorative. You know, it's a way to to to, to stop the spread of information. And how do we determine what is true versus what is false without information? And that includes incorrect information. Truth can stand up to scrutiny and questioning. Falsehood can't. So if you put some information out there, people can evaluate it. They can fact check it, see whether it's true, whether it makes sense, and then make up their own minds. Um, when people talk about misinformation, generally what they're, what they're talking about is the suppression of information that runs contrary to an assertion that must not be questioned. And this is a, 
a very dangerous and fundamentally tyrannical point of view, and that's why I'm, I'm so virulently opposed to it. Nowhere am I seeing a greater effort to suppress <clears throat> misinformation than uh, when it comes to vaccines. Even from even from mm-hmm. official sources, if they say something that runs counter to the prevailing narrative that we're supposed to believe, you know, they get shut down and quickly. Yeah, we're not even allowed to raise our hand and say, well, wait a minute. The definition of vaccine has been changed. It used to mean that uh, you were immunized against whatever the putative sickness was. And that's no longer true. Uh, these vaccines, and I always say it with irony and with air fingers quotes, uh, are at best uh, symptom palliators, meaning they, you know, they make you feel less bad if you happen to get this virus. But in no way do they prevent you from getting it. Now, this is a fact. It's not in dispute. You can still get the Rona if you're vaccinated, even if you've been doubly or triply vaccinated. That's a fact. But to state that is characterized as misinformation. And we've got people like RFK Jr., who's a lib, and so he's a little bit on the opposite side of the spectrum from me as a libertarian. But he's an honest guy, and he talks about these facts and gets excoriated for presenting these facts. Uh, You know, I, I pine for the time when we could just have an honest debate on the merits, on the facts, and when... Uh, you know, just presenting information wasn't considered some kind of a religious offense, which it is now. You know, you point out in your article, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VAERS, mm-hmm. uh, has, has some pretty interesting data right now. But if you reference that data, even though that's an official source, you may be considered guilty of spreading misinformation because it's very clear. There's some very unusual things. You're seeing professional athletes dropping mm-hmm. on the field as they're playing and, and having cardiac arrest and some of them dying. And, and we're supposed to pretend that that's just some remarkable coincidence that couldn't possibly have anything to do with the fact that they were mandatorily vaccinated. Sure. And, and let's not forget the new abnormal of almost daily reports of previously healthy teenagers suddenly developing heart inflammation and other similar uh, circulatory related problems. Now, the interesting thing about VAERS is it's not a new thing. It's been around for a long time. It's been uh, something that's uh, served as a kind of canary in the coal mine with regard to vaccines. That's the whole point of it. Uh, It's a means by which people can report problems with the vaccines. And in the past, these reports would lead to inquiries. And if the inquiries were substantiated, then action would be taken. You and I have talked before about the swine flu thing that occurred back around 1975 or so. And uh, back then when I think the number was about 50 people suffered serious adverse effects, meaning they died, about 50 people, and that was sufficient cause to shut down that program. Now, at the very minimum right now, it's been acknowledged, this is not in contention, a couple thousand people at the very least have died in conjunction with the jab, and yet these jabs are not being taken off the market. Not only that, they're being being foisted on the category of people who are essentially at nil risk of getting or spreading this putative sickness, meaning children. Uh, according to the, the data that I've read most recently, the number of kids who have actually died or suffered some really serious catastrophic health effect from the jab is now higher than the number of kids who supposedly have died as a result of getting the Rona. Well, I can see why we're not supposed to question these kinds of things, because then we might start questioning other things that people in authority are insisting that we do that may or may not be in our best interest. Yeah, that's always been true, but this is remarkably different in a way, quantitatively. You know, this is, this is you know, it's a, it's a word that I hesitate to use because you don't want to use it prematurely, but I think it's a word that's applicable in this case, and the word is evil. You know, we're talking about something that is causing real harm to lots of people, and on the basis of what? 
you know, a, a sickness that 99.8 something percent of the population recovers from. You know, this is this is the definition of a mass hysteria that has been using that is being used to forward an evil agenda. And what's being done to kids in particular is atrocious beyond imagining. I, you know, I just can't get my head around these people who want to, to shoot these kids up with these drugs that do God knows what to them. You know, and a lot of these people are the very same people who before the pandemic were obsessed with safety. And, you know, we can't have can't have kids riding big wheels in the backyard without wearing a helmet and got to put them in their child safety seat because there's a, a one in a quadrillion chance that they might uh, get hurt on account of that. But now it's okay to hurt the kids for some reason. It's a really bizarre and I think evil thing. Well, it leaves those of us who are looking for good information upon which to base our worldview. Um, we have to do a little bit of extra digging. In other words, there, there's there's misinformation and then there's the counter to misinformation, which seems aimed at keeping us from getting too close to the truth. Give me your best recommendations. Mm-hmm. A person who's serious about uh, finding out what's going on, what are some of the resources that you would point them toward? Well, you know, this is really difficult because we live in an extraordinarily confusing era when there is so much uh, information being put out there and so much of it is being put forward dishonestly or disingenuously. We used to be able to kind of sort of trust the the mainstream so-called sources, which at that time were largely <laughs> concerned with reporting the news and the facts. And while they did slant it sometimes, <clears throat> oh, pardon me, too much coffee or a little bit of Rona, <laughs> you know, they weren't outright propagandists as they are now. So you know, the, the thing to do is to just consult sources that seem legitimate. One very good source, in my opinion, uh, because it's the kind of thing that you can check for yourself and the information that's being put forward isn't being sold to you with a religious mania. It's, it's, it's presented, hey, here, here's the data. You should look into this yourself, is the Children's uh, Health Defense Fund that RFK Jr. runs. Uh, really good, solid stuff there that's not ideological. And by the way, uh, check out his book on Fauci, which I think is currently the, the right at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, that guy's doing yeoman's work. And again, even though you know he and I are uh, in, in many ways at opposite ends of the spectrum, I greatly respect him for his integrity and his honesty. Well, that's this is one of the tests of uh, whether a person is sincere about learning is can they accept truth from any source? We've got to take a quick break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. I'll have a link to his website in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianheidshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. If you're looking for a good take on what's going on around us, read what Eric has written, but also read the comments. He's got some fantastic uh, people who read and and comment on his work. Eric, one of the articles that uh, you recently published, uh, A Tale of Two Bishops, Mm -hmm. and I know people get upset when we start making comparisons between, you know, totalitarianism today and totalitarianism Mm -hmm. 80-some years ago, but there are some very interesting parallels, and you did a very good job of connecting the dots between these, these two German religious leaders. Tell us the story. Sure. Well, this is about standing up to totalitarianism. In the news uh, this week, 
uh, we, we, we discovered that a German cardinal uh, by the name of Gerhard Müller has come out and denounced uh, the, the ghettoizing, the pariahizing of people who question the jab and who are opposed um, to taking away people's social rights and their legal rights and firing them and, uh, and you know, turning them into a pariah class that it's okay to spit on. And I thought it was very striking, very interesting that it turns out that, there is, that this is a German clergyman who's doing this in Germany, because 80 years ago, uh, another German clergyman did the same thing, and his name was August von Galen, and he was the Bishop of Munster, and he was one of the very first prominent people in Germany to take the risk of standing up to the Nazis in public and denouncing what they were doing. And it presented a real conundrum for the Nazis because he was a popular guy. He was a well-known guy. And they couldn't just drag him off to the concentration camp. They were just champing at the bit to do it. Uh, and the importance of what he did cannot be understated. He gave courage to other people who were less prominent and perhaps therefore more fearful of what might happen to them if they said something. And I think that the, uh, the cardinal's decision to come forward and speak his conscience publicly is going to have the same effect right now, and it's a wonderful thing. And I hope it has a synergistic effect and encourages more people to stand up and say, wait a minute, I've got questions about this. This is wrong. This makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, it's. I, I know people get, uh, you know, they, they invoke Godwin's law. Oh, you're invoking Hitler yeah. here now. You know, I don't have to listen to anything you say, but... You know, Germany especially, and Austria too, the way that they are locking down and the way that they are, you know, ramping up the demands on their citizenry, you would you would think that they would have learned something from not even 100 years before. You know, it doesn't take much of a stretch, actually, to draw the parallel because they're doing it for us. I read the other day, I wish I could remember the exact reference, but it was an official in either Austria or Germany who used this phrase. He said, the, vaccinated, the unvaccinated are our misfortune. Uh, does that ring to you? Do you, have you, do you? do you recall when a term very similar to that was used 80 years ago? Wow. Wow. The term used 80 years ago were the Jews are our misfortune. Yeah, it's... So it was literally the same phrase, just substituting uh, unvaccinated for Jews. Yeah, and, and I guess the thing that shocks me, Eric, is... How do people not see this? How do people not recognize what's going on? I, I, I don't know that I don't know that they're evil or stupid. I think they just no. don't want to see it. That's it. Well, I think there are a number of factors in play here, and they all serve to benefit the powers that are behind this. And one of them, I think, is that most people are not evil. And that the, the paradox is people who aren't evil have difficulty coming to grips with evil because they themselves would not participate in such a thing. They themselves would not even think of such a thing. It's very difficult for them to imagine anybody else doing it, and that makes them very vulnerable because they want to believe, ah, they've got good intentions, they're really just trying to help us. No, they're not really trying to depopulate us or sterilize us or do God knows what else they're trying to do to us. You know, that's one of the factors. And I think another factor is that people just don't want to stand out. They don't want to be the one who raises their hand first. So that's how, that's how bullies succeed. They manage to dominate a group by seeing to it that nobody within that group dares to challenge the bully. But the other side of that is if there's one brave person in that group who will challenge the bully, it will give courage to the other people in the group to do the same. Oh, I'm, I'm with you there. You know, I, I think about people, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with Hannah Arendt. 
Yes. And she talked about the how... Finality of evil. Yeah, it's it's not, you know, you, you, you don't see this clearly identifiable monster with horns and, you know, reeking of sulfur and, you know, that's, that's going right. around doing evil. It's ordinary people who just obey or go along because they don't want to rock the boat. Sure. The, the tyrant cannot impose his tyranny without the passive complicity of ordinary, decent people. You, you know, you heard the term when we talk about Nazi Germany, about the good German. And what it meant was an average person who himself wasn't a bad guy or a bad woman, but nonetheless did bad things because they were afraid to stand up to the tyrant. So they figured, ah, you know, I'm just not going to do anything, and I hope that I won't get, get tyrannized. And the tragedy about that is that, you know, if you're not brave enough to take a stand for something because you think that doing so will lead to your being harmed, it's certain that you will be harmed eventually. It's just a question of when your turn in line is going to come. Well, and I, you know, when you, your article about the, the tale of two bishops um, made me think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, yes. who mm-hmm. also was a German uh, clergy member who spoke yep. out against and eventually was imprisoned and then murdered by the Nazis just yep. before the end of the war. But he yep. talked about how to, to not say something is is still to to lend your support to in other words you can't just hide your head and pretend it's not happening you've got to be willing to risk whatever you know the consequences are if you see evil taking place you really should be courageous enough to say what it is and you know take the licks you do and i'm going to say something very patriarchal now i think that it is particularly incumbent upon us as men to do that first because we are in a better position to endure the uh, assaults, the slings and arrows of fortune, as it were, than women, and particularly children, who I think, again, patriarchal comment, that we as men have an obligation to protect before we protect ourselves. This is ironic, because you you have no idea what I have coming up later in the show, but I actually have Mm -hmm. a great commentary from James Howard Kunzler, where he Mm -hmm. makes exactly that call. He says, men, it is your job to help bring order. And you should stop hiding among the women and children and pretending you're one yep. of them. So, amen, yep. Eric. <laughs> you're right on the Absolutely. money. Absolutely. You know, and it's a wonderful thing. You know, it gives us as men purpose. And uh, our job is to help to restore order and to prevent chaos. Another guy that I'm a big fan of, and I'm sure you're familiar with him, and if people listening to this aren't, I recommend they become familiar with him, is Jordan Peterson. Oh, yeah. Who's become quite famous over the last several years. The guy is... He's very pithy, but he's very wise, and he's got a lot of good things to say about all of these topics. All right, Eric, we're down to about two minutes left. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the automotive side of your website. In addition to, sure. to clear and, and concise commentary upon uh, you know, political happenings, you also do a lot of uh, work with, with automotive things. Have you test-driven anything recently that is, is worthy of a brag? trying to think of anything that's been particularly worthy of a brag. Unfortunately, most of the vehicles that I have test-driven recently uh, are crossover SUVs, which I uh, often refer to with a kind of snarky uh, intonation in my voice as the universal transportation appliance, not that they're bad cars. However, I will be getting something fairly good soon, and that is the new Jeep Grand Cherokee, which is a real SUV and not a crossover, and which uh, it looks like is going to offer the, the Hellcat Supercharged V8 as an option. Um, so get it while you can, though, because unfortunately Dodge is having to bend knee to the political pressure being applied by the Wokesters in D.C. to go all electric, which is a, something we can talk about in the next show, perhaps. Yeah, well, you've been one of the voices who's been uh, leading out 
on you know talking about the the push toward electric vehicles, whether the public wants them or not. I think we're mm-hmm. being convinced, or people are telling us, "Oh no, no, you really want this." But it seems a lot of this is coming from regulatory minds instead. Well, almost all of it is coming from regulatory minds. There's very little uh, natural demand for this for a variety of reasons, and chief among them is the cost. You know, you can uh, talk all day long about the various virtues of the electric car, even let's just, you know, without, without debating it, say that they're good for the environment. Okay, well, well and good. Problem is, if people can't afford it, it's irrelevant. You know, I, I made a comment on another show that I'd very much like to have a Cirrus Vision jet, you know, personal jet. I'd love that. I'd love people to just jump in my own personal jet and fly wherever I'd like to without getting crotch grabbed at the airport. Problem is, it's $2.1 million, and that's a bit above my budget. <laughs> so it doesn't matter how neat the Cirrus Vision jet is, or for that matter, uh, an electric car. I can't afford to spend forty dollars or $50,000 on a car. Can you? No. No. We are unfortunately up against the clock. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Eric, looking forward to our visit next week. You bet. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Did you know one of my sponsors, LifesavingFood.com, has dusted off an amazing offer for my listeners alone. You should feel very privileged. This is not being extended to anybody except those within the sound of my voice. So if uh, food storage is your thing, or if you think that someday food storage might be your thing, this might be a good time to uh, click on the link that I provide in today's show notes and go to lifesavingfood.com. Here's the deal. They sell food storage, and they have everything from individual cans to grab-and-go packs to, you know, full, you know, this will feed your whole family for a year types of food storage. My listeners can enjoy the following benefits by using the coupon code HIDE at checkout. A 30% discount. No, that's correct. 30% discount. No sales tax and free delivery. Or free shipping, I should say. Free shipping, no sales tax, 30% discount. Holy cow. What are you waiting for? Lifesavingfood.com. Again, it's in the show notes, or you can just go straight to the website. Take advantage of this while you can. Might be a great time to give food storage as Christmas gifts. Just saying. I would be thrilled if someone gave me food storage. I'd be like, wow, you really care about me. Kind of a far cry from the years, well, I was hoping for a side-by-side. But no, I, I think the food storage actually would be pretty nice, too. Although if somebody's thinking of giving me a, a side-by-side for Christmas, I'm not going to turn you down. I'll just put that out there. You know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, to stand for truth is nothing. For truth, you must sit in jail. And as I look around us today, I'm finding that is actually, that's not, uh, that's not a bad sentiment. Some of the best people I know, and let me qualify what I mean by best, people who are principled, people who are willing to stand up for what is right, even when it causes them pain and suffering, even when they have to suffer for their beliefs. Yeah, they kind of get uh, they get run through the system. They get uh, dragged through and and maligned, and of course, people you know s- spit on their their name and their reputation. But some of the most consistent defenders of freedom 
And I'm thinking of people like Ammon Bundy and Ryan Bundy and others. Um, oh, Sarah Walton Brady is another one. This is the mom from Meridian, Idaho, arrested a couple months into the, the pandemic uh, for, for taking her kids to a playground. Do you remember those fun days when, you know, the playgrounds were all roped off with crime scene tape? Well, you know, a police officer showed up and told him, you guys are trespassing. And, and Sarah, being just a, a good albeit a little fiery individual, she, she asked him questions. What, what law are you following here? How can we be trespassing? This is a public place. These kids are outdoors. And finally, you know, the police officer started escalating because she wasn't cooperating quickly enough. And she said, what are you going to do? Arrest me? He arrested her. And now the, the state of Idaho has been taking her through the ringer over and over again. They keep delaying having an actual trial. I personally, I think they're afraid to put her in front of a jury because the jury is going to turn around and stick that case in the state's ear and break it off for being so obtuse. As to, why are you taking this woman to court? Why are you pursuing this as a grave criminal matter? It never was. It was a matter of bureaucratic overreach. It was a matter of a woman having the courage to stand up, and the system is punishing her. The, the, the punishment is the process, not the actual outcome of any trial. She spent tens of thousands of dollars on lawyers, and it's it's just, it's it's very difficult. So Solzhenitsyn was right. Moral courage comes at a cost. And I want to I want to share with you an excerpt. Of, this is from Becky Akers from uh, LouRockwell.com. This is about another hero. And I look, Brian, are you trying to persuade us that people who are jailbirds are people we should look up to? What I'm saying is. The best people that you are likely to meet are people who are in real danger of going to jail because they cannot be separated from their principles. Not because they're going around victimizing people, but because they present an example of what courage looks like. And the state or the people who thrive upon the state's power look at that as a threat. Becky Akers writes, the People's Democratic Republic of Minnesota has once again shamed itself in the persons of of Judge Joseph Bultel, City Attorney Kelly Martinez, and six spineless jurors. That tyrannical octet has imprisoned an entrepreneur for opening her business during our ruler's pandemic. And bully, I'm sorry, Bultel added gross injury or insult to injury by smugly lecturing the heroine of this story and sentencing her to nine times what her prosecutor suggested. So the the woman in question here is uh, Ms. Melissa, I'm sorry, Melissa Lisa Hansen. She operates a bistro in Albert Leah, Minnesota, and it's a bistro that she refused to close despite Governor Tim Walz's illegal decrees. Well, hell hath no fury like Leviathan scorned, says Becky Akers. Ergo, the beast has savaged Ms. Hansen with a flurry of charges and dates in court. Last Thursday's circus, at which, at which Ms. Hansen represented herself, resulted in a sentence of 90 days in jail and a fine of $1,000. Now, the prosecutor recommended 10 days, a fine of $500 in court fees. Court fees. And Becky Akers says, call me wildly misinformed, but... Don't our taxes finance courts and their associated sociopaths? Meanwhile, when polled, all of the six jurors affirmed that guilty was their verdict. To which Ms. Akers says, well, way to go there, sheeple. Not a one of you fit to wipe Ms. Hansen's shoes. But thereafter, the judge scolded this outstanding patriot for 20 minutes as he vindictively condemned her to the pokey. 
Now, Ms. Hansen's analysis, she said, look, there's no reason to put a person like me behind bars. Just because I have a passion for liberty and freedom doesn't mean I should be put behind bars. But Becky Aker says, al contraire, my dear, that's precisely why the bully is socking you away. Here's hoping he sowed the seed of, of his seeds of his verdicts overturning with his blatant bias. This is from a news story. The judge said, you were a public risk because you kept your business open. Hansen was like a career criminal or a drug or alcohol offender, he said, and the only sentence he felt was appropriate would be to cause restraint both to keep Hansen from acting like this again and to stop others from following suit. Buhltil said Hansen took advantage of the COVID-19 restaurant shutdowns by being the only store with her doors open. You sure played them for the fool, didn't you, the judge said. You just wanted to make money during a global pandemic. Yeah, money that the state steals from her and pays to you, bully. So your disdain is, you know, noted, but it's also pretty questionable. Buhltil barely concealed his personal animus against Hansen, says the news article. Isn't that interesting? Oh, and listen to this quote. This is, uh, this is a quote uh, from, uh, from the judge. You don't want to recognize our law. I want to reinforce that the law does apply to you. I want to send a message to the community that executive orders are law. Really? Okay. So, so uh, Becky Akers asks, since when do defendants languish in a cage to send a message to the community? Yo, bully, you ever heard of uh, carrier pigeons, letters, phones, and advertising? Take your pick. Send all the messages you like, but how dare you brutalize this intensely admirable lady? And when Hansen asked, well, uh, could I have a more detailed explanation of what the sentencing would look like? The judge told her, you're your own counsel. Figure it out. <laughs> Holy cow. Second offense. So when the revolution comes, Becky Aker says, I hope the Minnesotans top their list of COVID criminals with this insufferable goon. Now, here's the worst part. Okay, so she, she's got nine months in jail, $1,000 fine, but she has yet to be tried for the three remaining misdemeanors, two additional counts of violating emergency orders, one count of public nuisance. Hansen could spend up to nine months in jail and be fined an additional $3,000 for those charges. Now, I, look, I'm not saying you have to agree with her. But can we agree that uh, who's the victim? Who was the victim in her keeping her business open, trying to stay alive? I know, obviously, the judge is, well, you're just trying to be greedy. Everybody else is closed. Why aren't you suffering with the rest of the crabs? Let's pull you back into the bucket. How dare you try to get out? Now you start to realize why there are so few people who are really willing to stand up and assert their rights. Not only do they risk fines and jail and court time and all of the, you know, attendant uh, stress that comes along with that, but their names are dragged through the mud. They're, we're, we're told to look at them as if they are little more than criminals. By the way, uh, Ms. Hansen, as I understand, departed into the state's dark night valiantly. As she was led away by deputies following the sentencing, she raised her hand and stated, Liberty and Freedom. Surprised she didn't catch a contempt of court charge for saying such such provocative words, man. <laughs> it irritates me. You can probably tell. It's. I understand people can disagree, but to use the power of the state to punish people who have not legitimately harmed anyone, who have caused no measurable, provable harm, where there is no victim. It's just a matter of the state's wounded pride. 
Well, you didn't follow our authority. You did not recognize our authority. That's, uh, that's where we find ourselves. And to those jurors, wow. Where did they go so far astray? It only takes one juror, you know, to say nope and to hang the jury. But that didn't happen this time. Probably a lesson in that as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I have to tread very carefully where I'm about to go because this is the kind of stuff, these are the kind of questions that will get you deplatformed and, uh, you know, in some cases, you know, the cancel culture crowd will be released against you. But I'm really concerned as I, as I look around some of the trends that I'm seeing right now, um, uh, particularly when I go to lewrockwell.com. This is one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers. lewrockwell.com is a news aggregator site. Lots of opinions, commentary, news articles that are posted on a daily basis. And there is a very definite trend that appears to be, uh, you know, starting to, to stand out of professional athletes collapsing and or dying unexpectedly, as well as children having difficulty, heart problems out of the clear blue sky. And I know that, you know, we're, we're being told, well, this is just nothing more than a bunch of uh, remarkable coincidences. But isn't it interesting that, uh, you know, there, there are some serious questions now about um, why don't the vaccine you know, effects, I mean, like protecting you from, from disease. Why is that, uh, why is that so short-lived? Why is it that people that were fully vaccinated just a few months ago now cannot claim to be fully vaccinated because they haven't had their boosters? Something fishy is going on here, but it's the vaccine injuries or potential vaccine injuries, I should say, that are really causing some interesting questions. And one of the most, uh, mo- most interesting observations, this is from Robert Bridge, is have professional athletes become the canaries in the proverbial COVID coal mine? Here's what he has to say. This was an article that was written for the Strategic Culture Foundation. Amid studies showing a link between some vaccines and heart problems, professional athletes appear to be collapsing on the field of dreams like never before. And in this case, uh, Robert Bridge says... uh, Are these incidences normal occurrences? Are they coincidences or symptomatic of mandatory vaccine programs? Now, as more countries make vaccinations mandatory, requirements, uh, you know, so that you can participate in any aspect of life, including that of sporting events, stadiums around the world have become something of testing grounds for determining the efficacy of the rollout. And so far, the results don't look particularly promising. Now, before I go any further, I got to tell you, I talked with a friend who was um, in another city, went to attend a comedy show, and he says, you know, it kind of sucked the fun right out of this comedy show. We get to the venue, we're getting ready to to go and and attend, but there's this line a mile long, and he's like, what on earth is going on here? Well, they were checking people's vaccination status, as well as wanding them, taking their, you know, cell phones and making sure that they were, you know, locked into a, a bag of some sort. And it just hit me that uh, we are really seeing more and more spaces becoming controlled environments. 
And and the the thing I would like them to is not even so much the airport. It's not like, oh, we're checking everybody for weapons, make sure nobody's going to hijack a plane. It's more like America is slowly, piece by piece, being transformed into a giant federal courthouse. I think back to when I was covering the Bundy trial about uh, four years ago down in Las Vegas. And every time you walked into that federal courthouse, you have this massive, imposing building, you know, first of all, that's there to remind you of the majesty of, of this, this wonderful entity that you're uh, having contact with. But literally, the moment you walk in the door, the government is flexing on you at every single turn. You've got to walk through a metal detector. Um, some of the marshals were actually very, very nice. Some of those U.S. marshals were, were very down-to-earth. Many of them were not. They had been trained that my word is God's word, and I, you know, whatever I say comes out, whatever comes out of my mouth is the law. And it's just everywhere you turn, you know, you you have you don't wear a hat, don't do this, don't do that. You you had to obey, and the state was there to make sure that everywhere you looked, you were reminded that it was in charge. Kind of a crazy thing. Nonetheless, going back to the story here. Last month, the world of female rugby was rocked by the news that Scottish sensation, and I don't know how to say this name, um, Siobhan Cadigan, 26-year-old, died suddenly in non-suspicious circumstances. As the Daily Mail reported, any time a young person, not least of all a healthy star athlete, dies unexpectedly, there's some inherent element of suspicion involved. Maybe not in the criminal sense, but certainly from a medical point of view. Moreover, Robert Bridge writes, had Cadigan's premature death, the cause of which has not been disclosed, been an isolated incident, well, we could chalk it up as something like a tragic fluke. But it appears that Cadigan's sudden death was not an isolated event, but part of a disturbing trend in the world of sports. And from here, he goes through and lists off um, different athletes stricken by health injuries just in the, in the same week. Isn't that strange? And he asks, do any of these emer- health emergencies prove that the mandated COVID vaccines were to blame? Absolutely not. In fact, many medical professionals have been quoted in the media on these incidences that are that they're inclined to blame it just on co- coincidence. The Daily Mail went so far as to say that scientists have rejected the suggestion the vaccines were suspect especially as the country braces itself for a possible wave of more cases and deaths from COVID after the discovery of the Omicron variant. Now, the conclusion by Reuters, after consulting with a number of medical experts, was nearly identical. No evidence COVID-19 vaccines are linked to athletes collapsing or dying from myocarditis. Nevertheless, the sudden spate of on-field emergencies has raised questions among several seasoned veterans of the game. This is ex-pro footballer Kevin Gage on Twitter. says, in my 19 years as a pro footballer and then my 20-plus years of watching and commenting, I've never seen any players collapse, pass out, either live or during any of the thousands of training sessions and matches I've taken part in. Well, that's interesting. Former England star Trevor Sinclair, speaking about the incident involving Fleck on radio station TalkSport, says, I think everyone wants to know if this player by the name of Fleck who collapsed had the, had the COVID vaccine. He says, everyone I speak to about these heart problems suffered by footballers, which worryingly seem to be happening more regularly, is are they linked to COVID vaccines or not? Now, I get it. Anecdotal evidence aside, is there anything in the medical literature to suggest a cause and effect may be in play? 
Well, the answer points to the affirmative, with various studies indicating possible health issues associated with the vaccines. Yet these risks, albeit rare, are being downplayed by social and mainstream media. Isn't that kind of curious? I mean, let's not blow it out of proportion, but let's not try to kick it under the carpet either. In early November, the American Heart Association, not your average right-wing group of conspiracy theorists, released a report with the lengthy title, Abstract 10712, MMA COVID vaccines dramatically increase endothelial inflammatory markers and ACS risk as measured by the PULS cardiac test. A warning. And the conclusion from the American Heart Association is worthy of some attention. Quote, we conclude that the mRNA vax dramatically increase inflammation on the endothelium and T-cell infiltration of cardiac muscle and may account for the observations of increased thrombosis, cardiomyopathy, and other vascular events following vaccination. Now, despite the long-standing reputation of the American Heart Association, Twitter still had to affix a warning stamp to the study, claiming it to be unsafe. So you may not want to consider that because this, this is counter to the narrative. All righty then. Meanwhile, the first glimpse of uh, Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine trial data, which is being released at the exclu- excruciatingly slow rate of 500 pages per month, means that full disclosure will not occur until the year 2076. Doesn't that instill confidence? The vaccine makers are immune from any kind of legal repercussions if someone is, by some chance, injured by the vaccine. And as far as the information about, you know, the trial data, well, you'll have to wait, you know, 70 or 55 years or so for that to to come out. So... Is it, uh, is it happening that, uh, that this is, is causing heart problems? We don't know. That's the point. We don't know. But as the world navigates its way through this period of impenetrable darkness along a coastline riddled with dangerous rock formations, Robert Bridge says it would seem wise not to discount any possibilities, no matter how unsettling. That's the only way of allowing the science to indiscriminately determine the facts, ignoring the other side of the debate as conspiracy theorists, however, is going to prevent the necessary discussion from ever taking place, which may very well be the goal behind such a risky game. I'm not telling you, don't get the vaccine. But I'm telling you, the people who are asking questions about the vaccines and about some of the potential uh, downsides of those vaccines... They're not wrong to be asking these questions. And they shouldn't be silenced just because it makes some people uncomfortable. And never, under any circumstances, should the state be brought into the matter to bring its coercion and its organized force into making people take an injection of something that they do not voluntarily choose to take in. Thus endeth our sermon. Thanks for being part of our audience. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Hey, welcome to the show. You know, there are great sponsors who make this program possible on a daily basis. They include GovernYourIncome.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. It's SewingQuiltingCenter.com. HSLMO.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also in St. George, Utah. LifesavingFood.com and MonticelloCollege.org. Thanks so much for being a part of this show. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm not here to hand down truth like it's coming down from on high. But I'm here to gently prod you and encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible about the things that are going on around us. It's not just a matter of, you know, being a smarty pants. It's a matter of how much do you want to maintain ownership of your own worldview versus being force-fed what you're supposed to believe and told, no, you can only parrot this back to us, nothing more. So I trust you to take this information, do with it as you will. If it's not something that you're interested in, feel free to reject it. That's your call. And I wanted I want to confess something here. Hopefully you don't think less of me for telling you this, but I struggle every single day to strike a balance between keeping you, my listener, informed and weighing you down with unpleasant truths. Because there's there's some very serious stuff going on. And, you know, I'm not trying to play to your sense of gloom and doom, but I feel like I have this duty to, to speak out and to point out things and to say things and to, to, to sound the warning where, where possible. And it's, 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 a tough, it's a tough balance to strike. I guess that's all I'm going to say. You don't need to feel sorry for me. It's just I want to do good more than anything. I want people to be sure of who they are and what they stand for more so than, than what they're upset about or what they're angry about, right? I came across a recent article here from Paul Rosenberg, and I want to make clear, I'm not suggesting that you and I are like little children, so we need to handle this like we're kids, but he has a very thoughtful approach about how we teach our kids about the lovely and the unlovely without making them afraid of the world. And I think this may actually translate well into, you know, how we can talk to each other. So for what it's worth, this is what Paul Rosenberg says. He says, this is an essential discussion for anyone raising children. And to begin it is a passage from a psychiatrist by the name of Boris Sidis from his lecture on the abuse of the fear instinct in early education. Quote, if we wish to have a strong, healthy, happy race of men, we should lay a good foundation in the education of early childhood. We should avoid all means of brutal, slavish training, which cripple man's individuality, freedom, and happiness. We should not use violence and fear. We should be careful to remove from the children all that is brutal, ugly, vicious, and fearsome. We should surround our young with the graceful, the true, the beautiful, the good, the kind, the lovely, and the loving. End quote. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I think that that's an excellent position to take. But it stands against the fact that more than a few adults have adopted the traits of predators, playing pranks on one another, showing their fitness by naming and facing evil, and so on. Now, these are touchy points, but they need to be faced if we're to raise children who are better than ourselves. We've grown up in cultures arranged around fear and violence, carrying messages and assumptions that are well below the optimal. He says it's clear from just an overview of popular entertainment that the hero is known for his good violence and the villain is known by his bad violence. But that's a faulty foundation for a healthy life. In other words, if we want our children to become better beings, 
we should remove the ubiquity of violence from their foundational memories and experiences. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I know that seems very odd in the context of our present culture, but you may come to agree if you allow it to remain in your mind for a while. That said, there are practical matters that need to be worked into this conversation. Building our children into superior beings sounds nice, but the world they'll encounter isn't very well geared for it. Parts are and parts aren't. Sending our kids into dark places while unprepared for them does, no, does them no service. So we face a large and pressing issue. How do we address the need, both the need for the lovely and the reality of the unlovely? Well, he says, to some extent, <clears throat> we want to see our children as, to, as we want them to be surprised by malice, meaning that their foundational selves see it as foreign, as not theirs and not normal. And those are very good expectations. On the other hand, we don't want them to be broken by the experience of malice. That can happen too, and the traumas tend to stick. So, too much exposure to malice or to unloveliness lays little corrupt blocks into our children's foundations. But overwhelming surprises of malice can crack those foundations. So, what is a parent to do? Well, the first answer is an easy one. Children should be completely insulated from malice and threat, from all unloveliness and confusion in their first several years. At that stage, they're not capable of doing anything in response to a threat, save to cry and not really capable of processing the events surrounding them. And so it's a no-brainer. They should be insulated at that time. Infants should encounter a benevolent, non-hostile, and non-confusing world. Now, sometimes parents mistake expressions of startle for enjoyment and or wonder. And so I think it's a mistake to try to surprise them often. The child should see a world that he or she is capable of comprehending, not one that confuses him. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I know this causes some traditional, uh, calls some traditional games into question, but the needs of the child outweigh the inertia of the parents. After the first few years, things become more difficult. For as long as possible, we want to maintain the child's innocent, benevolent expectations of life. Nevertheless, they will begin running into a sometimes less than ideal reality. Other kids will occasionally be mean. They'll see bad things happen to other people. People will get sick and grandparents are likely to die. In other words, the world doesn't accommodate states of purity. What we need to do then is to bring our children into contact with the darker parts of the world one layer at a time. And as each each new layer of unpleasantness is about to impact them. But the great problem here is a very obvious one. We haven't remotely enough knowledge to make such decisions. Life surprises us as well as it does them. We simply don't know when they'll be slapped with unpleasantness. And overly protecting them can also hinder their development. And so we have no choice but to accept our incomplete knowledge and to do the best we can anyway. That means we have to guess. So here are two examples of conscious guesses, each of them uncertain. If their grandparents are starting to decline and or are seriously ill, you should probably start familiarizing them with the sad fact of death. Maybe Grandpa will recover beautifully, but if you don't get started, there's a chance they'll be just not not just saddened, but traumatized when Grandpa dies. By the way, this is also true for beloved pets. Second example, if Uncle Roger is a vulgar person, you should probably avoid sending your kids to his house. He may never do anything overt to hurt them, but his view of life is not something you want them to absorb until they're ready for it. At some point, it's okay. 
Your child will be saddened or even educated by it, but too soon or simply on a day when their emotions are vulnerable, it can harm them. At the same time, you risk damaging your relationship with Uncle Roger, which can affect not only you but your child. So the point is, as a parent, you'll encounter a long string of decisions like these or situations like these, and for each of them you have to make an important choice based upon grossly incomplete information. So being the parent's a tough job, but we all have to do our best all the same. Now, there's an important phrase in the list above, and that's on a day when their emotions are vulnerable. That's a difficult thing to identify, especially since that determination has to be made in the context of parenting, which taxes us all a great deal of the time. And however much we watch for emotional vulnerability, our success rate is unlikely to be terribly high. So this isn't something obvious like my kid has a cut. So what we must do then is twofold. Watch for it anyway. The more we consider it, the higher our success rate will be and strengthen their emotional resilience. The more resilient they are, the less emotional shocks will scar them long term. How to strengthen your child's emotional resilience is a complex and murky subject of its own, but he says before we conclude, I'll give you a few thoughts. First of all, their first encounters with darkness should be things that they hear about, things that are external, not in their home. Upon such first encounters, you should inform them that there are a few bad people in the world, not many, you should say, and none of the people we know, but there are some bad people, and we just try to stay away from them. You should also introduce them to the fact that most people are medium, not just good guys and bad guys. Help them understand that usually good people sometimes have a bad day and do grumpy things. And finally, don't punish them or be angry at them for accidents and mistakes. Instead, teach them how to fix them. I think this is pretty good advice. In fact, I'm, I'm sitting back looking at my own parenting and going, I really wish I had followed that approach. Unfortunately, my kids were guinea pigs, and I'm still learning. Even as I'm a grandpa, I'm still learning how to parent. I suspect I'm probably not alone. Check out the article that's linked in today's show notes. We'll be right back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to send some love out there for one of my sponsors. That would be SewingQuiltingCenter.com. Located in St. George, Utah, 779 South Bluff Street. This is your authorized dealer for Brothers Sewing and Embroidery Machines. Also, Baby Lock Sergers, Embroidery and Sewing Machines, Handy Quilter, Long Arm Quilting Machines. Now, if this sounds like a foreign language to you, if you're like, I've never heard of those things, just trust me when I tell you there are people out there who live and breathe sewing and quilting and embroidery. And if you're one of those people, well, more power to you. Now you know where you can not only find these machines, you can get them fixed, you can get training, you can get all the things you need, fabric, thread, everything. But it's also a wonderful business. It's a family-owned business. Sewing Quilting Center started back in 1984. It's changed owners only two times. Current owners are Teresa and Eric Alsop. So if you'd like to find out more, please click on the link. Better still, if you're in the St. George area, stop in and say hello to them. Let them know that their advertising message has reached you. And who knows, maybe you'll find that you have a love of sewing or embroidery yourself. 
So you're going to notice a bit of a theme in this hour of the show, and that theme is how do we uh, how do we face dark times? How do we prepare children, and I'm going to say and ourselves, to face the challenges ahead? Got a great article here from Jeff Minnick from intellectualtakeout.org about how to give kids the tools to survive and overcome the ordeals of the future. It's titled, It's Time to Make Our Young People Tough. No, we're not going to do this like Lycurgus and, and the Spartans. <laughs> we're going we're gonna, to uh, we're gonna actually uh, take a little, little more tempered approach. They would leave the babies out in the cold. Well, if they survive, then they're strong enough to be one of us. If they don't, then they weren't. You know, that's, no, that was legitimately how, how they did things. Jeff Minnick says, in mid-November, students at Eastern Illinois University took two days off from their rigid academic schedules for R&R. University administrators and faculty members provided the young adults with a festival of ice cream, cocoa and cookies, coloring books, yoga, affirmation cards, and yes, trikes and Legos. All of this, writes Alex Parker at Red State, because it was feared that students were fading in the face of their arduous assignments and COVID-19. Now, Parker contrasts this event with another one that took place almost 80 years ago on the beaches of Normandy when young men who were roughly the same age as these students charged from their landing crafts into the face of deadly enemy fire, many of them dying from bullets or drowning. Yet they persevered and won the beach and the war. Now this contrast should raise a huge question. How does the coddling of these university students with trikes and hot cocoa prepare them for the real world, a world which is promising to be much tougher than that which their parents faced? Jeff Minnick says soon, Very soon, they will graduate and compete for jobs, deal with office deadlines, and be forced to exert themselves in a world that would laugh at the use of trike rides and crayons to relieve stress. He says, 21 years ago, I picked up my daughter and three other first-year students and drove them home from their college in Virginia for Christmas break. They'd just finished final exams for the semester, and they looked like the walking dead, pale, groggy, burdened with suitcases and backpacks, close to collapse. On the six-hour drive south, they spent part of the time discussing an exam question, asking whether a dog has a soul. Who could forget such a conversation? For most of the ride, however, they slept, exhausted by their ordeal. And Jeff Minnick says that's the way it's supposed to be. Young adults need to be pushed to their limits and to handle stress, not be treated like children coming off a bad day in the fourth grade. Instead of creating a carnival of big pink volleyball and spa-on-the-go kits... He says, I would suggest that university officials bolster these wilting souls by having them read Jocko Willink's The Way of the Warrior Kid book series. A renowned podcaster, author, speaker, and ex-seal, Willink has written three books aimed at late elementary to middle school kids, which means college students should have little difficulty reading them. In each of these novels, we meet Mark, a boy struggling with the usual adolescent problems, schoolwork, bullying, responsibility, and his uncle Jake, a former Navy SEAL who pushes Mark to excel mentally, physically, and morally. He introduces his nephew to judo classes, takes him on morning runs, and has him doing pull-ups until he's exhausted, all the while offering him advice on living with honor and following the right path. Now Mark takes Uncle Jake's advice to heart and shapes it into a warrior kid code, which includes such precepts as these. The warrior kid trains hard, exercises, and eats right to be strong and fast and healthy. The warrior kid treats people with respect, 
doesn't judge them, and helps out other people whenever possible. The warrior kid stays humble, controls his ego, and stays calm. Warrior kids do not lose their tempers. In short, Jocko Willink's warrior kid is not a wimp. Now, those who are truly woke right now understand that our country is entering hard times. Our economy is in turmoil. Our public education system is falling apart. Our government seems intent on reducing our liberties, and we're facing international conflicts with countries like Russia, Iraq, and China. Now, those who are as old as I am, Jeff Minnick says, may escape some of the mess that lies ahead of us. But the young will need strong hearts and stiff spines to fight the battles awaiting them. When we fail to train them to face the challenges coming down the road, when we think we're doing a 21-year-old a service by letting him remain an adolescent, we are making a grave mistake. Tough times may make tough people, as the old saying goes, but tough times can also devour weak people. And Minnick says if we want the best for our children, we'll give them the tools required to survive and overcome the ordeals of the future. Man, I've thought a lot about this. As I was reading his article and as I've pondered it, I thought, what am I doing to help my kids be more resilient? And in some places, I think I've done okay. In a lot of places, I see where I've dropped the ball. But that conversation about resilience is one that I would recommend you have with your children. Or if you have grandkids, have it with your grandkids. And maybe it's something that you and I need to consider for our own lives as well seeing as we all face challenging things too. I mean, is, is there anybody within the sound of my voice who hasn't either encountered someone who is struggling with depression, struggling with a sense of despair, or maybe you're feeling it yourself? I mean, I'm not ashamed to put this out there, but uh, there, there are times when, you know, I find myself, you know, feeling that personal descent into darkness and, and uh, it's, it's a little bit scary. Now, I don't want to make it sound like, an, oh, we're all just right there on the, the edge of destruction. You know, it's, it's so scary. But we've had a lot to deal with. And for people who are already in a, in a vulnerable place, people who already have multiple challenges piling up, it can seem overwhelming. At the same time, it's very possible to build the resilience, the, the mental calluses, if you will, that allow you to persevere even when things don't go as intended. I don't know what the answer is, and I'm open to, you know, if you, if you have thoughts on this, feel free to reach out to me. I, I'm trying to soak up as much information as I can, too. I know I have had a couple of pretty dramatic shifts in my thinking over the years. And one of the things that I have learned is that uh, when things happen, if you look for the door that's opening rather than standing there yelling at the door that closed, it almost always seems to to be the better way to go. Um, Another thing that uh, I think really helps provide needed perspective, if you find yourself, you know, lagging, if you find yourself starting to bog down in in the, the swamp of whatever misery we happen to be encountering at the moment, the one surefire way that I know to snap myself out of that situation is to look for someone who needs a helping hand. In other words, find a way to be of service to someone else. It's not that hard. 
I mean, it could be simply, you know, being pleasant to the person who's ringing up your order. It could be, you know, showing a courtesy in traffic, helping a neighbor move something heavy into their basement, whatever the case may be. Check out the article from Jeff Minnick. I think you'll enjoy it. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, here's a shout-out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. If you are moving to the Intermountain West or you have moved to the Intermountain West and been looking for a home, first of all, welcome. <laughs> this is It is a great place to live. This is one of those remaining islands of freedom in an otherwise increasingly unfree world. And I can totally understand why people want to come where they have, you know, more freedom. But if you're looking for a home, you know that it's a pretty hot real estate market. So when you find the house that you want to, to put an offer on, you've got to have your financing squared away. This is where the Heather Turner team from Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability and decades of experience to help you get what you need. Now, if you're moving anywhere within the state of Utah, they are there to help you. Call Heather at 435-703-4522. Her NMLS ID is 715-386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And I'd be very grateful if you would do business with her, just so that she could know that uh, her advertising message is reaching your ears. Well, the shorter days and the colder weather always take a little bit of a toll on me. And I, I, you know, please, this is not self-pity here. I'm just, I'm one of those people who the the shorter the days are, the more I find myself in a bit of a funk. And it it happens every year. And of course, we're coming up on the shortest day of the year, daylight-wise, I always marvel as the sun gets a little further south in the sky, you know, how, how quickly the, the daylight comes and goes. And that's when I, I find myself uh, struggling a little bit to stay positive. Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org reminds us that finding hope in a dark time is possible. In fact, even when we're suffering, it's possible to find hope. So if you're wondering how to be optimistic when you don't know what the future holds. Here's some great advice from Annie Holmquist. She says there's something about sorrow, pain, and suffering that make an individual and his thoughts more poignant, mature, and full of meaning. No one likes to suffer, yet there's something beautiful, almost hopeful, that comes out of loss and difficult times. She says, I thought about this while reflecting on the words of the Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel which seems to come alive in this dark time in which we live. Combined with its minor key tune, its words signal that it was written by someone who knew suffering and loss, but had learned to have hope even in the storms of life. But how do we do that? How do we find that hope? It's found simply by, is it found simply by slapping on a smile and telling ourselves everything will be all right? Hardly. A look at the hymn gives insight into our own time and how we can weather our difficulties by grasping the hope it offers. And from here she quotes the hymn, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free, thine own from Satan's tyranny, 
and from depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. Now, Annie Holmquist says, although many of us aren't experiencing captivity right now, the lockdowns of 2020 taught us a little bit about what it was like to be in lonely exile away from friends and loved ones. And tyranny? Well, those same lockdowns and diktats that followed them have given us a taste of what it's like to live under tyrants. Yet as the next verses of this hymn tell us, we can put this misery and gloom behind us by looking to God and the salvation he promises. O come, thou dayspring, from on high, and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high, and close and close the path to, to misery. Now, Annie Holmquist says Americans have certainly experienced a lot of gloom and misery lately. Anxiety and depression have increased between 25 and 30 percent worldwide during the pandemic. An October 2021 study published in the uh, Lancet points out uh, how this is so. And there's a very interesting graph that's included in this article, so I hope you'll check it out. The younger age ranges especially experienced higher rates of depression and anxiety, with the 20 to 24-year-old age range seeing the highest increases. Commenting on that study in Psychology Today, Dr. Lanty Jordan B. Durand B. rather raised several possible reasons for the increase in younger people, particularly the fact that job losses and school disruptions due to COVID have been more prevalent among the young, and the social isolation caused by the pandemic affected the young more. But Durand B. may have looked o- overlooked rather another key reason, in which a reason which uh, O Come O Come Emmanuel speaks to, and that is a lack of God. In their lives. Now, Annie Holmquist writes So many in our society are quick to forget God. Even before the pandemic, the decline of religious affiliation was accelerating and belief in God was declining. This is particularly the case with younger adults, as 31% of millennials and 33% of Generation Z report no religious affiliation in a 2021 Gallup poll. Now, granted, The pandemic was difficult enough to raise anyone's stress levels. Yet what if the lack of God in their lives left people, young people especially, with no hope, no way of dealing with despair? As this hymn teaches, it's through God and his plan of redemption that we can cast off despair and live in hope. The same message is one touched on by Anthony Esselin in the November issue of Chronicles magazine. There is a difference between Hope and optimism, Esselin writes. The optimist fixates on external circumstances and convinces himself that tomorrow will be bright. But unlike the optimist, the man of hope does not pretend to force the future or to know what it will bring. That's not to say that the man of hope does not have difficulties, but it is in that hope that he finds peace. He does not presume to know the right side of history, yet he gives himself to the adventure of life an adventure that may bring him much suffering. Will he see the end of that suffering? He does not know. But he trusts in the divine, and he carries on. In his very suffering, he is more cheerful and more at peace than is the pleasure seeker in his jittery bursts of optimism. Now, Annie Holmquist says, Look, we will all undoubtedly face suffering in the days and years ahead, for suffering is part of life. Even life that's not besieged by pandemic and the fallout which that brings. 
But she says, how we deal with that suffering is what makes the difference between a life of hope and a life of despair. For those who want to come live the former, meditating upon and incorporating the meaning of the Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, will go a long way toward accomplishing such a desire, dispelling gloom and despair in the process. I know, Brian, what, what, what she's saying here, she's telling us basically to, to get religion? I don't know if I'd put it that way. Maybe. I think she's telling us, though, to, to look to something other than, you know, escapes. My favorite escape is to eat till the pain goes away. <laughs> My waistline shows it. Uh, but I, I'm only half joking. We all have coping mechanisms. But maybe this is a good time to ask yourself, where do I find hope? Do I find hope at all? I haven't talked to very many people that I would categorize as, boy, they are truly hopeless, man. I mean, they're despondent. Like, maybe they should have a friend sitting with them just in case. But then again, not everybody wears their uh, despair on their sleeves. You know, nobody... So, I, I know uh, I know of an instance in which uh, uh, a close acquaintance uh, lost a neighbor who took his life on Thanksgiving Day. Tragic. And the most tragic aspect of it was nobody saw it coming. It was, it was an older neighbor, a person who was, was plagued with some health problems. But this, this close acquaintance was saying it, it, just, it just absolutely rocked our worlds because nobody expected that our neighbor had reached that point where he just couldn't go on and ended up taking his own life. I know this may sound kind of mystical, but I'm a believer that um, a lot of people's prayers, including our own, can be answered through other people. And in in uh, my my short fifty six years of life, I have uh, I've encountered more than a few times where being at the right place at the right time or someone's name pops into your head and you call them to check on them or you just extend a kindness to somebody just on a whim or maybe you had a little nudge that said, you know, you should uh, buy that homeless person dinner or whatever. And it, and it turns out to be an immense turning point. And it turns out that the person that you reach out to was actively praying for help. Okay, this isn't a flex, this isn't, you know, a humble brag, but it's a pretty remarkable feeling to realize that you were just the answer to another person's prayer. And likewise, when you find yourself struggling, how reassuring is it when help appears at that moment of need? You see the little slight, uh, you know, shift in focus and where that can lead us? Maybe that's something worth exploring. I'll leave that for you to decide. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, I don't know if you've had the chance to uh, visit uh, my sponsors on uh, on my show notes page. If you want, 
I would invite you, first of all, come to my website, thebrianheitshow.com. Subscribe to my show notes. I'm not going to throw sales pitches at you every five minutes. I'm just going to invite you to click on the links, get to know these sponsors. One in particular that I want to point to is hslammo.com. And and I'm only telling you this because I know that uh, Spencer's got some really nice HSL ammo swag. And again, for the shooter on your Christmas list, you might want to consider either ammunition or maybe even some of this nice swag as a nice uh, Christmas gift. Also, I want to encourage you to look at the show notes as a uh, repository of different uh, resources that will lead you further on down the path if you want to research those on your own. I'm just giving you, you know, the merest taste of it in the course of this show, but uh, there are so many great links, and many of the articles that I share, I share them because they have great sourcing, they are principled, they're not just partisan, blah, 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 you know, bumper sticker slogans back and forth at each other. So if you're a person who's serious about owning your worldview, this is a great way to do it. Oh, and one other thing. I also have remarkable listeners like you who send me articles that they find interesting. Hey, have you heard about this? You thought about maybe sharing this? I love it when people do that. You know, I, I try to keep my eyes open, and I'm, I'm constantly on the prowl. I'm looking, you know, always to see if there's something interesting, something that's noteworthy that I could, could share with you. And I absolutely adore the people who find something interesting and say, I'm going to send this to Brian. Just on the off chance that he could use it. More often than not, I do. So thank you in advance. Yes, I'm inviting you to be a part of my show prep every day. And like I mentioned earlier this week, when I once the once the show is done and the show notes are published, I immediately open up a new page and start building the show notes for the next time. And I just kind of aggregate them. I add articles and little annotations of things I thought about the articles as I go. And, you know, sometimes I have more stuff than I can cover. So there's some bonus material in there for you. But the end goal here is not to create a legion of followers, but to persuade people to step up and become leaders in your own sphere of influence. And that starts with making sure that you see the world around you as clearly as possible. All right. Final uh, final thoughts here for the final segment of the show today. You know, countering this uh, flood tide of darkness that's sweeping over the world is a very daunting job. But it's time to stop waiting for someone else to ride to your rescue. James Howard Kunstler has some encouragement as well as some sober advice. This is particularly for men. And as I'm looking at my demographics, as I'm looking at particularly my podcast statistics, I'm speaking to a lot of uh, young fathers. I would say the the bulk of my listening audience is young dads, according to my podcast statistics, and that's, that's from one particular platform. But the sober advice that James Howard Kunstler has is, your job, men, is to stand up and bring order to the world. So stop hiding among the women and children like you're one of them. You know, as the Titanic is headed for the bottom. He says the frenzy around the Christmas holiday conceals deeper currents running through advanced techno-industrial societies like froth on the surface of a raging river that surges with dangerous hidden flotsam. We're informed that the next James Bond might be a transsexual. But you see, it's not just that Hollywood is running out of gimmicks for its floundering franchises, but rather 
There has been no place for men these days in the struggle to prevent civilization from drowning. The lifeguards are canceled. All that's left in the commotion of the flood is the shrieking of women. Thus, the hysteria over Trumpism. America actually needed a rescue operation, and defective as he was personality-wise, Mr. Trump rose above the surge and called for exactly that, and was pulled under for the effrontery of saying so. It was a bad time to be a man standing out among men. The torrent is in charge now, not the people bobbing and flailing in it. Write it out if you can. By and by the flood will subside and the survivors will be cast back on shore. The shrieking women will also subside because the men will tell them to cut it out. And then the men and women will go forth reconstructing the human project here in North America. Now, James Howard Kunstler says the landscape will not look the same and we will not act like we did before when we were just carried along helplessly in the flood. He says there will be fewer of us, all the giant things too large to say themselves, the corporations, the institutions, the agencies will be swept away, but we'll be back on dry land with a lot of debris to sort through, some of it useful for rebuilding a way of life. We'll be too busy for any more shrieking and hand-wringing, and crybabies will get whapped upside their heads. That's what you can expect in the decade ahead, he says. For a moment, everything is just froth and noise, and most everybody's in too much of a panic to make sense. Humans don't do well without sense-making. What makes sense is having a roof over your head, something to eat, and some purposeful activities to provide those things and some other people to exist with and care for, and some ceremonies to honor our efforts and declare our gratitude for being here in the first place. Now, he says, Christmas, most of us understand, is as much about the world descending into cyclical darkness as it is about the birth of a religious figure who signifies our recognition of the very light that makes darkness visible. You also understand, of course, that demons and monsters dwell within the darkness, that they spawn in it. This year, the darkness seems darker than any darkness we remember. And so we may be astonished when the light returns to our world. Eventually, we'll memorialize the monsters and they will frighten children for generations to come. Now, he says, I know it's hard to imagine generations to come at this moment in history. There's even some question whether human beings will be able to reproduce after the dastardly things we've done to our own chemistry. But this isn't the end for us. Not yet, anyway. So he says, let's act as if it's not, at least. We don't know for sure where our story goes from here. We have some say in it, though, depending on what we do. And just knowing that there's a difference between storytelling and story-making is a good start in rediscovering what men are for. Now, James Howard Kunstler says one thing men are responsible for is bringing order to the world. They don't always succeed, but it must be their duty to make that effort. And it's not wise to distract them with histrionics when they attempt to do that or shame them for trying. You're not excused from your duty in any case, American men. It's not okay to pretend to be women to escape your duty. The women must not allow the men to hide among them and pretend to be them. They must insist that you be men. One of your first duties as men is to oppose false realities to preserve meaning. And you do that, first, by insisting upon being upright yourself and speaking of things as they really are, so that you can do with them what you must do. 
And this is the meaning of authority which has been submerged in the flood we're riding on. This flood of false realities drowning the meaning of everything. Now he says, I know this makes for a harsh Christmas. It's where we happen to be, the flood tide of darkness. Do what you can with it, knowing it marks some kind of turning. But he says, I promise you, the light is coming. I know, how do you feel? It's like, well, he's... He's optimistic, but at the same time, he says there's darkness, and it's, it sounds like sounds like it's really kind of scary out there. It is kind of scary, and in many ways, you know, this is this is uncharted territory for most of us. I've never seen anything like this before in my life, and I I like to know. I mean, I'm one of those people who really likes to know. Wait a minute, how exactly do I get? to my destination. I need every step spelled out here, like Google Maps used to do. <clears throat> Remember, before you could just do it on your on your phone and have that real-time navigation, you actually had to print out, you know, okay, so we'll travel this far and then take a right, and then that's the kind of directions I want. Life doesn't supply them, though. And I think God, in his wisdom, lets us work out a lot of these things. This is how we build that resilience. This is how we learn to trust ourselves. So I'm hoping that above all else, yes, it's a challenging time. Yes, there is definitely darkness gathering, and, and, it, and it seems like in, in some ways it, it, it wants to carry the day. I don't think it's going to win. In fact, I know it's not going to win. So let's focus insofar as we're able, you and I, on being sources of light for the people around us. And if that's, if that's our goal, you know, to be a source of light in a world that is growing noticeably dimmer in many ways, we've got to be upright people. We've got to be the best version of ourselves that we possibly can. I'm still working on it. I'm sure you are too, but I'm here to send some encouragement your way and say, keep going. You're doing just fine. This is The Brian Hyde Show.